Were there authentic pro-democracy ideals underpinning the Euromaidan movement in Ukraine? And were those ideals realized? How did the Maidan uprising in late 2013 and early 2014 compare with the Donbass uprisings which would follow? What factors are shaping the international community's response to the Ukraine crisis? Are Western imperial ambitions undermining the Minsk ceasefire agreement? What does the future hold for Ukraine? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we explore some of the history and background of the four-year-old Ukraine crisis with noted scholar and writer Ruslan Zarazov. We will also hear from Canadian writer, analyst, and frequent guest Roger Annis. On this week's program, Ukraine's plight four years after Maidan, conversations with Ruslan Zarazov and Roger Annis. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 24th, 2017. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. It's remarkable that whenever you read an article about Yemen in the mainstream media, the central role of Saudi Arabia and the United States in the tragedy is glossed over or completely ignored. A recent Washington Post article purporting to tell us how things got so bad explains to us that it's a complicated story, quote-unquote, involving warring regional superpowers, terrorism, oil, and an impending climate catastrophe. No, Washington Post, it's simpler than that. The tragedy in Yemen is the result of foreign military intervention in the internal affairs of that country. It started with the Arab Spring, which had all the fingerprints of State Department meddling, and it escalated with 2015's unprovoked Saudi attack on the country to reinstall Riyadh's preferred leader. That comes from the article, Why Are We Helping Saudi Arabia Destroy Yemen? by Representative Ron Paul, posted November 21st, originally appearing at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Interestingly, it was announced that any oil exporter who will accept payment in Chinese yuan will be able to convert them into gold at the Shanghai Gold Exchange and hedge the currency value of gold at the Shanghai Futures Exchange. That is why China needs physical gold, and it has been recently buying it on a large scale. Undoubtedly, all oil exporters, and especially those who have poor political relations with the USA, will profit from the segregation of the Chinese future market, because any decrease of U.S. dollar influence diminishes seriously the ability of Washington to wage an economic war on select states. The introduction of the oil future traded in Chinese yuan will enable oil exporters, for example, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, to avoid sanctions on their oil trade. Thus, a plan is being commissioned to ruin the United States of America right before our eyes. That comes from the article, The Middle East, The Decline of American Might, by Victor Mikin, 
posted November 21st, originally appearing at New Eastern Outlook. As Common Dreams reported, quote, Trump's behavior throughout his campaign and presidency has heightened concerns about the threat of nuclear annihilation and has, for months, provoked global demands that the U.S. Congress strip Trump of his nuclear authority, unquote. While Heighton's comments on Saturday likely brought some relief to those concerned about Trump's finger on the nuclear button, Bruce Blair, a former nuclear missile launch officer and co-founder of the Global Zero Group that advocates eliminating nuclear weapons, said there's another important caveat that shouldn't be missed. The strategic command chief, Heighton in this case, could be bypassed by the president. A president can transmit his nuclear attack order directly to a Pentagon war room, Blair told the AP, and from there, the news outlet reports, the order, quote, would go to the men and women who would turn the launch keys, unquote. That comes from the article. Experts warn it would take more than one U.S. general to thwart illegal nuclear strike emanating from the White House. By John Queeley, posted November 20th, originally appearing at Common Dreams. Israeli military intelligence-connected Debka file, or DF, discussed London media reports claiming Saudi King Salman intends naming Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman his successor in days, perhaps this week. DF quoted London's Daily Mail, saying the new monarch, once in power, intends, quote, starting a fire in Lebanon in the hope of Israeli military backing to crush Hezbollah, promising Israel billions of dollars if they agree, unquote. According to an unnamed source, the kingdom can't confront Hezbollah without Israeli help. Washington would have to agree. Israel won't attack Iran or Lebanon without U.S. permission and direct or indirect involvement, a huge risk likely involving Russia aiding Tehran like its Syria offensive against U.S. supported terrorists. That comes from the article U.S.-Saudi-Israeli Alliance for Greater Regional Turbulence by Stephen Lenman, posted November 20th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. It was four years ago this week, on November 21, 2013, that Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych officially rejected an agreement on closer trade ties with the European Union, opting instead for closer cooperation with Russia. This event triggered the Euromaidan movement, which grew and overwhelmed the government's efforts to maintain control, ultimately resulting in the overthrow of the Yanukovych government in February of the following year, and a rash of violence that has shattered this former Soviet republic. In the months that would follow, Crimea would secede and rejoin Russia, and rebels in the southeast regions of Donetsk and Lugansk would engage in an armed rebellion taking control of a series of cities. A ceasefire agreement, Minsk II, is in place with civilian monitors from OSCE countries monitoring and reporting on the situation. 
Currently, Ukraine's parliament, the Verkova Rada, is deliberating over legislation that, once passed, possibly as soon as early December, will result in Russia being declared an aggressor country, the suspension of bilateral trade between Russia and Ukraine, and likely the resumption of military operations in the Donbass region. The U.S. Congress is considering providing lethal defense weapons to the Ukraine government as this program goes to air. To provide some in-depth historical context to the four-year-old Ukraine crisis, the Global Research News Hour had the privilege of securing an interview with an authoritative voice on the subject. Ruslan Zarazov is a senior research fellow with the Central Institute of Economics and Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences and head of the Department of Political Economy at Plekhanov, Russian University of Economics in Moscow. Zarasov has written extensively on the Russian Revolution as well as the distinctive form of capitalism that has emerged in post-communist Russia. In a talk he gave at the University of Manitoba in late September 2017, Zarasov evoked terms from the school of structuralist thought known as world systems theory, which postulate a set of relations of dependence among countries that undermine the development of the so-called peripheral capitalist countries at the expense of the more prosperous so-called core capitalist countries, such as the United States and Great Britain. Semi-peripheral capitalist countries sit in an intermediate phase between the two categories. In our interview, we started off with a discussion of the reasons for the failures of Russia and Ukraine to thrive as capitalist economies following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of communism. Here is Ruslan Zarazov. The nature of peripheral capitalism's uh, can be explained as uh, uh, as shifting uh, enormous portion of uh, uh, of incomes created by its population in favor of transnational capital of the core. So, from th- this perspective, uh, the breakdown of the Soviet Union was a, a, a enormous tragedy for Soviet peoples because they moved not to the capitalism of the core as they were persuaded by propaganda, as I mentioned already, but they shifted to periphery capitalism. That is, at the, uh, I think, uh, at the root, this fact is at the root of all uh, modern problems of the of current problems of the former Soviet societies. And Ukraine, I, uh, I believe, demonstrates the classical features of peripheral capitalism uh, and it experienced enormous decline of production uh, while in Soviet times Soviet Ukraine was was one of the most prosperous Soviet republics uh, and now its manufacturing declined even its agriculture declined uh, and uh, the country suffers enormous decline of living standards capital flight, which was estimated by, by uh, specialists from The Economist um, as amounting to 10% of the national wealth in newly all post-Soviet uh, years on average. Uh, and uh, in result, um, in, uh, uh, the country uh, lost, I-, I think, its independence, which was the main reason why it split from the Soviet Union. Russia performs not much better. It also suffered enormous decline of manufacturing production and uh, decline of living standards. However, Russia possesses large um, oil and uh, gas resources. And in times of high prices on energy resources at the world market, Russia benefited from that. 
Uh, and uh, this um, facilitated certain stabilization of economic and social situation in Russia and political situation. Uh, and I must say that uh, comparing Russian and Ukraine capitalisms, uh, many specialists believe that Russia occupies semi-peripheral position in the world capitalist system, which means that uh, it, <clears throat> to a certain extent, it is able to defend its national interests. However, it also transfers a large portion of incomes created by its population in favor of transnational corporation, corporations. This happens uh, primarily in the form of uh, capital flight, which, uh, which I think is less than 10% uh, of national income annually, but still it is significant and it is persistent. It is enough to say that in 2014-15, when uh, anti-Russian sanctions were imposed and there was uh, an almost decline of uh, oil prices uh, and geopolit geopolitical conflict uh, over Ukraine started, uh, more than $200 billion of net uh, outflow of private capital happened, which is enormous blow to Russian economy. However, uh, Russia still has nuclear weapons, and it inherited from the Soviet Union uh, education, fundamental science, and uh, industrial potential. All this is eroded in post-communist times, but not to such extent uh, uh, that we can speak about complete peripherization of Russia. So semi-peripheral status, I, I believe, is the legacy of the Soviet Union. So if we compare the two, uh, two countries, I think we can think, um, uh, we can perceive them uh, as um, uh, classical peripheral and semi-peripheral capitalism. And these are, uh, I think, important preconditions, internal preconditions of these societies uh, for the current uh, uh, geopolitical crisis. The semi-peripheral country, uh, having uh, been able to survive the uh, the situation much better than the uh, the peripheral one. I think so. Yes. Uh, what is uh, the most important is that semi-peripheral country and all BRICS countries are semi-peripheral. Uh, they can they have more opportunities to defend their interests at the face of the capital of the core, while purely peripheral countries uh, they just subjugate. Uh, and in fact sacrifice their national interests to the transnational capital of the core. That is the key difference. Mm. When you look at the post-Maidan situation, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of the things that they were fighting for, they haven't achieved. And I, I don't see the Maidan protests, uh, they're not that visible anymore. You're tracing this, uh, you, their, their conception of, of how to go about achieving those, those goals. Uh, as being linked with uh, an, a misunderstanding of the, the peripheral status of this country? Uh, I think that uh, at the core of Maidan protest was enormous and justified indignation of Ukrainian population uh, with low living standards, corruption and inefficiency of the state, enormous social inequality, with, which is characteristic for both Russian and Ukrainian society, but I think for Ukrainian society uh, this problem is greater. 
uh, and people um, were justified in their outrage about all this. However, these are inherent features of the peripheral capitalist system. And if you want to get rid of these features, you have to overcome the social foundations of this society. You have to move to some other type of capitalism. You have, um, or beyond capitalism, but in frameworks of peripheral capitalism, it is impossible to establish decent democracy, rule of law, uh, economic achieve economic prosperity, uh, and uh, protesters naively believed that if they overthrow current government, which was corrupted and inefficient, uh, they will achieve all their aims. In fact, since the result from the very foundations of the social system, it was impossible by changing the government. Uh, and uh, what is important is that uh, this indignation of people was used, I believe, by external forces uh, to achieve their aims, which were very different from what uh, was pursued by rank-and-file participants of these events. And I mean foreign countries, uh, first of all, United States of America and uh, European Union, uh, which... Uh, uh, I believe, uh, facilitated Maidan uprising, supported uh, right-wing opposition, which, uh, which was present at the Maidan. I mean, radical nationalist forces. I'm not saying that they uh, formed overwhelming majority of uh, protesters. According to uh, some polls and estimations, they mounted uh, to about 10% of participants on average. However, their presence was crucial because they were well organized, they had trained militants, uh, and uh, uh, through, through their organization, uh, Western countries, mainly, mainly United States, uh, I believe influenced events very much. And in fact, a violent coup in February 2014 was carried out using these militant groups uh, as, a, as a real force, as a tool of uh, changing power. And I would like to remind a uh, famous saying of U.S. President Obama, we brokered transition of power in Ukraine. And uh, deputy... Uh, State Secretary of the United States, Victoria Nuland, uh, made famous confession that the uh, United States spent $5 billion to strengthen democracy in Ukraine in post-Soviet period. In fact, if you take into account enormous scale of so-called non-government organizations, their activities in Ukraine all these years, then you will realize that it, is it was much more than $5 billion, in fact. And if you take into account that major opposition political parties represented at Maidan were uh, created with the help of the West, financially supported, and of course they were controlled by Western politicians, I mean, but Kivshina with Yatsenyuk, who is uh, uh, a pro-American politician, I mean Udar, uh, with Klitschko, 
uh, who is pro-German politician, and I mean Svoboda, with, uh, headed by Tegnibok, uh, uh, who is obviously connected with Republican Party of the United States and personally with McCain. So uh, the West prepared Maidan event with the help of all this uh, and many other elements of uh, what we can call infrastructure of control over ostensibly, allegedly independent country. Uh, uh, in fact, they exploited uh, the features of peripheral capitalism. Of course, one of the key elements of Western influence in Ukrainian society uh, were uh, infamous oligarchs. We have the same problem in Russia, by the way. Uh, oligarchs accumulate wealth in post-Soviet societies, but they keep it in the West. And due to that, they became dependent on the West and the West can use them as, an, as a very powerful instrument of influence. And we saw it in Ukraine. Russia is also vulnerable for such misuse of dependence of its rich, richest people on the West. Uh, in Ukraine, oligarchs supported and financed Maidan uprising, despite the fact that some of them were related and had close connections with uh, Yanukovych, the, uh, the president of Ukraine at the time. So all these uh, different instruments of influence on Ukraine society were put to a good use, uh, organizing Maidan uprising and then violent coup in February 2014, which ousted uh, former President Yanukovych, however, however corrupted, he was legitimate president of Ukraine, and he was removed from power by force. And I would like to remind the famous leakage of uh, discussions between uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, Deputy State Secretary of the United States, and uh, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Payet, he was ambassador at the time who a few weeks, I think three or four weeks before change of power in Kiev, discussed who will be the next prime minister of this country. And they discarded Klitschko as pro-EU politician. They discarded Tagnibok as, uh, as too extremist politician. And they uh, came to a conclusion that Yatsenyuk is the... Yats is our guy. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> exactly, that uh, pro-American politician, quite reliable, and he should lead the government. Uh, this happened a few weeks before uh, Maidan triumphed and Yesenyuk was put in power. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, these events, these dramatic events, on the one hand, uh, were a result of democratic aspirations of Ukrainian people. On the other hand, they had shown limitations of uh, bourgeois democratic movement in conditions of periphery capitalism. Uh, uh, I think that uh, real conditions, objective conditions of Ukrainian society uh, in the framework of this type of social system, they simply 
provide no real opportunity to establish sound democracy, to fight corruption. That is why uh, Maidan ideals failed and the results, as you mentioned earlier, were very different from intended. You mentioned in the, uh, among the Maidan who are seeking a more bourgeois, democratic uh, um, vision. Uh, are we seeing anything fundamentally different in the southeast of Donbass starting to form? Yes, I think um, that uh, Donbass uprising is fundamentally different because it is a genuine uprising which was not uh, organized, staged, faci facilitated, led by any external forces. Uh, and the real picture, I believe, is very different from what is depicted in the West. They depict uh, Maidan uprising as um, coming only from people, uh, as a grassroots, which is out of grassroots movement, while in Donbass everything was staged by Russia, by secret, force, uh, secret agencies, by um, uh, Russian uh, state and political uh, parties. Trade unions were involved and such kind of things. I think that uh, it is uh, fundamentally false. If Donbass uprising was supported, really supported, organized and supported by Russia, then it would triumph not only in Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts, uh, but in Kharkov, Kherson, Odessa. But uh, because in all these regions, there was enormous uh, drive from below uh, to against the new regime which took power in Kiev. And I believe that uh, failure of democratic aspirations of Maidan ignited Donbass uprising. Because in result of, uh, of Maidan events, uh, uh, nationalist, anti-Russian, and pro-American regime appeared. And uh, since it was entrenching a periphery, uh, fundamental features of peripheral capitalism in Ukraine, then, uh, and since it was nationalistic, Russian and pro-Russian population of uh, southeast of uh, the country, uh, it uh, felt that uh, it experienced both social and national uh, suppression, oppression. Uh, one of the first, uh, actually, uh, Russian and pro-Russian populations of the southeast lost its political representative uh, representation in uh, in the capital in result of this coup. Uh, and one of the first acts of the new uh, forces coming to power were to deprive Russian language of the status of the second official language in Ukraine. And today we see that now um, uh, Kyiv government prohibits uh, teaching in Russian in Ukrainian schools. So it was not uh, any occasional and uh, random event. This is uh, the, one of the fundamental trends of the new regime uh, to adopt anti-Russian policy and suppress pro-Russian population in Ukraine. And of course this uh, uh, led to outrage of uh, population, of pro-Russian population, and uh, there were enormous riots, manifestations, demonstrations against new regime uh, all over southeast in Crimea. Odessa, Kherson, Kiev, 
Uh, oh, sorry, not Kyiv. Uh, Kharkov, uh, Lugansk, Donetsk. Uh, and in, uh, everywhere, with the exception of Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, these uprisings failed. However, in Kharkov, for example, uh, there were more mass manifestations than in Donetsk. Kharkov is a great city, and it, it is most important. Once it was a capital in the, at the dawn of the Soviet power, it was a capital of Ukraine for some short time, a period of time. Uh, and uh, Ukrainian state, new Ukrainian regime, focused on Kharkov, used all its resources to suppress uprising there, and that is how Donetsk and Lugansk succeeded, because they, at, at the time they had no enough power to, to suppress uh, uh, popular uprising in all, um, in all regions. Uh, but you remember that in Odessa there was very violent suppression of uh, uh, Odessa People's Republic, which was proclaimed, and uh, pro-Russian activists were chased, and in the trade union's uh, house there was a burning, and many people died and were burned alive. Uh, so all these, uh, of course, led to, uh, to military resistance, and uh, reunification with Crimea, uh, strengthened, uh, of Russia with Crimea, strengthened uh, these sentiments in the southeast and uh, facilitated uh, Donetsk and Lugansk population to struggle for uh, their independence. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. How, how do you see those international players uh, aligning with those the goals of the uh, uh, of the you know, people on the ground that are you know, trying to achieve some sort of democracy? You know, uh, to interpret the role of international players, we should take into account their interests. Why they were interested became interested supporting this coup. I believe that uh, United States are uh, very interested in using Russia to isolate China and to, uh, to support uh, their strategy in Eurasia, which was, according to American uh, political thinkers, uh, the main aim of uh, U.S. strategy in Eurasia for the last century was uh, to prevent any uh, any superpower from arising there and uniting uh, people and resources of the continent, because this would be a mortal threat for U.S. hegemony. Uh, and today, uh, American ruling class is uh, very concerned with the uh, growth of China and with the challenge uh, which this growth can present to U.S. domination. And they think that uh, such countries as Russia uh, should perform their function of semi-peripheries in the sense that they should help transnational capital of the core to control uh, periphery. And currently, uh, Russia should uh, help to isolate and subjugate China. Instead of, this, of doing this, Russia, last years in 2000s, 
uh, it launched its own uh, Eurasian integration uh, project, uh, and it, uh, it tried to uh, to play independent role in the international arena and uh, made a claim to become a regional uh, power with the influence uh, in the former Soviet Union, uh, which uh, doesn't fit the strategy of the United States in Eurasia. And I think that this was the main reason why the United States decided to, uh, to broker this transition of power in Kiev, because Ukraine played a very important role in U.S. strategy to uh, subjugate Russia. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a plan to establish a third district of U.S. anti-missile defense system in Ukraine. Previously, uh, Americans tried to organize this in Poland and Czechia, in che and Czech Republic, but now they decided to move it to Ukraine, and they needed a overtly pro-American government in Kiev in order to organize this. And the other strategic move was to oust Russian fleet from the Black Sea, from Sevastopol, uh, the major naval base of Russian Navy in the Black Sea, and replace it with U.S. Navy base. Uh, and uh, these two, even only these two steps, uh, were perceived by uh, Russian government and ruling elite, by Russian society, as a mortal threat. Uh, and that is why uh, Russian government decided to, to uh, take preemptive st steps and it uh, supported a popular uprising in Crimea, which was part of the uprising of the southeastern uh, Ukraine, and they facilitated reunification with Crimea. Uh, so this was obviously a strategic move to defend vital interests of the country, and it completely coincided with aspirations with, of overwhelming population of Crimea. I think this was the, the first uh, step of Russian uh, state, uh, which uh, put uh, a limit, which uh, stopped unstoppable up to the time movement of NATO to the east. Uh, and uh, of course, it inspired Southeast Asian, uh, Southeast uh, Ukrainian population uh, to increase their pricing, because uh, everybody believed that uh, Russia will interfere and help Donetsk and Lugansk at the time. But this didn't happen. Uh, Russia, the position of Russian government if, is ambiguous in this issue. Uh, Russian, go uh, Russian government did not officially recognize Donetsk and Lukansk People's Republics, uh, and it provides only limited military and economic help. Uh, in, uh, in the, uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, it was Russia, of course, who prevented uh, um, military suppression of two re breakaway republics in summer 2014. Uh, however, uh, when pro-Russian uh, troops in these two republics virtually defeated Ukrainian army and uh, it lost discipline and was unable to stop offense of, of these forces of two breakaway republics, 
Russian government stopped them. So it prevented extension of, uh, of the republics to the boundaries of former uh, Donetsk and Lugansk districts. And in fact, these forces could go even further. On the other hand, uh, Russian government prevented overgrowth of these uh, movements for independence of two people's republics uh, to, into something more, because uh, from my personal uh, communication with uh, uh, activists uh, uh, of these republics, with volunteers who went there to fight for their independence, I know that uh, uh, the overwhelming sentiment of people there was that property of oligarchs should be nationalized. National income should be redistributed if in favor of workers, of hired labor. And genuine, um, uh, genuine popular democracy sh should be established. Of course, the last term is controversial because different fractions of volunteers and activists Underst uh, they uh, understood different meaning under the term uh, people's power. Uh, however, obviously this was uh, aspiration for wider democracy, uh, for control or from below over uh, the state, uh, and uh, in terms of nationalization and redistribution of wealth, there was unanimous, unanimous uh, uh, decision that this, this should be done. Russian state prevented all that. You see, so uh, on the one hand, Russia uh, prevented military suppression of these republics. On the other hand, it leaves um, all possibilities for reconciliation with the West. Russian ruling elite uh, is by no means determined to wage cold war like uh, Soviet Union and it is demonized in the West. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it's like they're, they're not really, the, the ruling elite isn't trying to anymore to, uh, to change the, the, the world uh, situation, but maybe the exactly. way in which uh, the, the West engages uh, with them and with other countries. Yes, I believe that uh, people like Richard Sakwa from, uh, from University of Kent United Kingdom, uh, they are correct when they argue that uh, uh, Russia pursues not revisionist but neo-revisionist cause. It tries not to change the world order, but it wants to compel the West to recognize its interests in the, in the framework of existing world order. I am not sure that it is realistic, but it is far cry from uh, Cold War policy strategy of uh, the Soviet Union, of course. And that is how we come to the nature of uh, Minsk uh, agreements, uh, because uh, these agreements are more in favor of Ukraine. Uh, I can remind that uh, they were achieved uh, in result of the offensive of two people's republics, in result of which Ukrainian army at the time was virtually swept away. Uh, and these accords, they fixed the new position and, uh, and according to these, uh, to these agreements, 
military forces of two republics stopped and had no right to go ahead. So uh, at the time, it, uh, these uh, agreements were much more favorable for Ukrainian side. And obviously, this was an act of reconciliation on the part of uh, Russian ruling elite. Uh, uh, Russia, official Russia, uh, signing uh, or, or rather using its influence on um, breakaway republics and urging them to sign these agreements suggested compromise to the West, but compromise was never um, achieved. Contributing to our conversation with Ruslan Zarasov was Roger Annis, a past guest of our program. Annis is a Vancouver-based socialist, writer, and retired aerospace engineer. He spoke at the same conference as Zarasov, and we had him comment further on the role of the international community in Ukraine, including the role of Canada. Uh, I would add a couple of points to all that he's described here. One is to underline the gravity of the economic situation in Ukraine. It's been something approaching an economic collapse in Ukraine since the uh, Maidan coup, as I'll call it, in February 2014. Many factory closings, uh, privatizations of previously uh, state uh, enterprises. Really the only people that have benefited materially from uh, this political change in Ukraine and the turn towards economic association with Europe uh, have been some of the elite who've been able to, to sell off some of their, uh, their holdings or who have aspirations of becoming partners of European capital coming into Ukraine and investing, for example, in agriculture, which is by far now Ukraine's uh, most valuable asset in the eyes of Western capitalist interests. But for uh, workers, the loss of jobs, the loss of social uh, security programs, the inflation, because the Ukrainian currency has, uh, you know, drastically lost value. It's been quite catastrophic. The other uh, section of the population to benefit are the people who all along wanted, really didn't have that much interest in Ukraine itself. They want to be in Western Europe, and they want to go to Poland, to Czech Republic, to France, to Britain, to uh, to work where their economic prospects would be much better. And so there's been uh, more free movement of labor westward and the hoped for economic agreement, uh, sorry, the hoped for um, uh, full integration into, of Ukraine into the European Union, which is not on the immediate agenda, but again this, this hoped for integration of the European Union is, is driven in part uh, quite strongly by those in Ukraine who foresee a future of not even living in Ukraine, but rather uh, gaining access to the better living, living standards for them. The other thing I'd underline is just how unpopular is this government in Kiev. Uh, the president, Petro Poroshenko, scores at around 10% of polling. There is deep dissatisfaction with, with the stagnation that people have lived in the last three years. So the only thing that really keeps this government alive is the continued anti-Russia propaganda, which appeals to a minority of the Ukrainian population and the even smaller minority of the extreme right, which for now support the government in Kiev because they're dependent upon it really for their 
their own existence as well. Uh, but it's a pretty dire political situation as well. There, there's a stirring controversy with, uh, uh, with Russia and the West, for that matter, with an idea that's been floated for some time by Petro Poroshenko of having United Nations peacekeepers come into eastern Ukraine. It's a mess. And um, really the only thing that keeps this Ukrainian regime alive and afloat in Kiev is its Western backing and this, you know, torrent of anti-Russia abuse, distortion of, of history, which, you know, to which a, a minority of the population adheres. The only thing I could say about Canadian policy is it's very much in lockstep with uh, the United States and also with Great Britain. The three countries have troops in, um, in Ukraine. Until this year, those troops were restricted to training activities in western Ukraine, and then the people they trained would go off and terrorize the population of eastern Ukraine. But now these troops have more freedom of, uh, they've been given freedom of movement to, uh, uh, to actually be in the zone of eastern Ukraine, so it's a, it's a very dangerous escalation. The other very serious uh, escalation and, and provocation by Canada specifically is that Canada has lifted uh, restrictions which previously prevented the sales of arms to Ukraine. Now they've lifted uh, provisions on some of the lighter weaponry, uh, making it possible for Ukraine to purchase weapons from Canada. That's a very serious escalation that has uh, typically gotten scant attention in the mainstream media in Canada. Um, on this uh, point of uh, UN peacekeeper, the, the pro proposition to bring in UN peacekeepers, there was a Russians have had a, a kind of a counter proposal to that, and I was wondering if you, uh, Ruslan, would uh, like to comment on uh, what uh, specifically Russia is uh, is putting in place and you know their motivations. You know, this uh, uh, issue is debated for a long time, from uh, I think from. Uh, very beginning of the conflict, when a uh, Kiev regime realized that it has not enough military resources to suppress uh, two republics, uh, they decided to involve Western countries uh, as much as they can. And one of the attempts was uh, to uh, introduce uh, UN peacekeepers there. Uh, and uh, the, they think that if peacekeepers go there, then they will be uh, more mostly pro-Ukrainian and they will help to control the area. There will be uh, uh, international military forces with, uh, with weapons and uh, they will um, support the position of uh, um, European uh, monitoring missions there, which usually uh, are very strict to violations of Minsky agreements on the part of uh, the military forces of breakaway republics, but they are blind to much uh, greater violations and to systematic provocations undertaken by Ukrainian militaries in, in the region. Sounds so, like the same model they have in Haiti, where in you yeah, have been... Yes, in, and in many other countries. Uh, and in the former... Um, Soviet space as well, for instance, in the Southern Caucasus prior to uh, this uh, five-day war, so-called five-day war, war of 2008. So this is the methodology of supporting a Western ally in a conflict with, uh, in a military conflict which came to, to an impasse. Uh, and uh, the, uh, 
Western countries, especially United States, accumulated great experience how to do that, and they applied all range of these instruments, for instance, during the Balkan crisis in the 1990s. Uh, and uh, they stopped offensive of uh, uh, People's Republics using Minsky agreements. And now they create certain infrastructure of control over this, uh, over this uh, military conflict, which will be favorable for their ally. And UN peacekeepers are part of this plan. Uh, that is why Russia o o was always opposing that. Uh, and uh, this created conditions for uh, depicting Russian position as uncooperative, aggressive. Look, we want to stop uh, military actions and they won't prevent this, this from happening. Uh, that is why I think so. The uh, Russian government changed its position now and uh, put uh, forward another diplomatic initiative uh, and they devised the uh, conditions on which uh, they agree to partial presence of UN uh, peacekeepers in the region. I was actually very interested in hearing what Ruslan just said now about the Minsk agreement because I've, you know, I've always presented it in favorable terms and I think that's still correct to do so. And I'm glad he's underlined how, just how unfavorable the Minsk II agreement was for the, you know, the fairly limited objectives of, of the uh, Donbass uprising, which let's remember in its origin was an uprising not for an independent Donbass and certainly not for federation with, the, with Russia, but rather for autonomous republics in Donetsk and in Lugansk that would have political powers roughly corresponding to the powers of provincial governments in Canada or state governments in the United States. And even that, the uh, Ukrainian government was uh, unwilling to accept, and I believe the European unwilling, uh, Union unwilling to accept also, even if they hypocritically talk as being supporters of Minsk uh, too. But that said, um, you know, it was some months after Minsk II where, when Ukraine has refused to implement the terms of it that Poroshenko began to talk about UN peacekeepers. And this was really an end run around uh, the situation. That is, he wants to get a, 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 a military and political force that's largely controlled by the West into eastern Ukraine and then just step by step by step assert uh, reassert Ukraine's authority in the region. And I think it's brilliant what the Russian government has responded with, which is, number one, the Minsk II agreements remain the priority. And any UN presence in eastern Ukraine would be uh, conditional on the implementation of Minsk II. And they've said uh, there, there must be a withdrawal of heavy, heavy weaponry from the contact line that runs the ceasefire line, shall we go? It's not a ceasefire contact line that runs through the middle of Donetsk and Lugansk, so there must be a withdrawal of heavy weaponry, which was in Minsk II agreement originally, and Ukraine has refused to implement. And number two, the UN uh, forces cannot be on the Ukrainian-Russian border. And so the ball is back in, in Ukraine's court now, and in the West's court. And I think what the Russian proposal helps to do, given that we have a total media blockade on what the real situation is in eastern Ukraine, on what the real Minsk II agreement actually says, I think it's quite helpful for shedding some light on who's really responsible for the failure of any long-standing uh, ceasefire agreement to be, uh, to be established. So, you know, hats off to Russian diplomacy on this one. The ball's back in the West's court now. Are you willing to have uh, the Minsk II agreements um, um, implemented? 
with UN peacekeepers along the contact line to make sure that Ukraine doesn't continue shelling uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Well, I predict that the West uh, will not will not uh, accept the Russian proposal because they have no they they've shown no interest in a ceasefire. Unfortunately, sadly, and tragically, I've been on the contact line uh, in eastern Ukraine, and I know how tragic life is for the people who don't have means to move and get out of the line of fire of the Ukraine armed forces, and that's mostly the older people because they they're not going to go live in refugee shelters. All they have is in their apartments there, you know, that run through the, uh, the western districts of Donetsk City and all along that line. It's really tragic, and uh, the world really should be looking into this and really should be pressuring uh, Ukraine and the West to uh, implement a, a, a meaningful ceasefire. And I, I fear that there's still not yet enough pressure by the citizenry in the, West, uh, in the Western countries to compel their governments to uh, accept that there should be a peace and a political uh, settlement in Eastern Ukraine. I'm sad to say it, but I think we're still not that yet there in terms of awareness and in pressure coming from the West, such that the Western governments and, uh, and the government in Kiev uh, act um, uh, correspondingly. Is a de facto division of, of Ukraine inevitable? Or are we going to see uh, five years from now, is this uh, contest going to continue? What, where, is this, uh, where, where is all this leading? I think that uh, now returning to Ukraine in the former borders as it was at the, to the moment of breakdown of the Soviet Union uh, is impossible. Uh, because too many things uh, changed and uh, this uh, civil war which uh, Kyiv regime started, uh, it mm, eliminates any opportunity to return to former compromise between two parts of Ukraine. So Ukraine is doomed to be split in a few countries. How many parts will be uh, how many countries will appear at the place of Ukraine? We don't know, because there is another question of Uzhgorod, so-called Zakarpatia, uh, where there are uh, big uh, uh, national minorities of uh, uh, other people, for, for instance, Hungarians, uh, who are not happy with uh, having Neobanderovce uh, in power in Kyiv. Bandera was a leader of Ukrainian collaborators with Nazi during the Second World War. So I think that return to status quo is already impossible. Uh, I think that uh, Ukrainian economy is in a, uh, in a ruined uh, uh, state and uh, it, uh, um, it depends on finances from the West, on Western credits, uh, and if uh, these credits stop, then there will be no other uh, means to uh, stop disintegration of the country. And of course, all depends on uh, military activities. Uh, currently, United States uh, are bogged in Syrian crisis, and uh, they has, it seems that they have not enough resources to uh, to support Ukraine, uh, Kyiv regime in its attempts to crash the People's Republics. If they find such resources, then situation can deteriorate dramatically. If not, then uh, People's Republics will survive 
uh, and nobody knows what will happen uh, in five years. I can't predict it uh, exactly. The only thing which I think, uh, which I believe is certain, is that uh, status quo is uh, is impossible anymore. Roger Annis, what is your crystal ball telling you? Uh, uh, the, the crystal ball is very uh, hazy. Um, I mean, let's remember that the original goal of the a counter Maidan protests was a was a federal Ukraine, a Ukraine in which there would be a decentralization of power. People in the West forget Ukraine is a highly centralized country. Imagine a Canada where all the governing authority is in Ottawa, none in Winnipeg, none in Vancouver, none in Toronto, uh, or in any of the other provincial capitals. That's the Ukraine, and you know that existed for 25 years, and people weren't so happy, and then it. Uh, it blew up with a Maidan coup. And so uh, 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 a decentralized Ukraine, I think, is unavoidable. It's a fundamental part of the, the of any resolution. In that context, whether now, as, as Ruslan has said, after three years of cruel civil war, the people in, in Donbass specifically would be prepared to accept that, or instead whether they would strive for an outright independence or perhaps even a, a federation with Russia, that's... That's a question, but we're unfortunately we're still a long way from a, a, a substantive political settlement in Ukraine, so we can only speculate on Donbass. Two other things that I would watch for is, you know, anytime the Ukrainian government takes, uh, you know, another right-wing step, like it's done with the new language law that's that's lifting uh, the rights of education and minority languages. Well, the Hungarian government has said that this will now, this obliges them to block Ukraine's application to the European Union. So these and similar measures, provocative measures, I would say, by that reflect the extreme nationalism that's in power in CAVE will, will be factors. And then thirdly, developments in Europe. It, were the Labour Party in Britain to be elected? Would that you know, cause a new British government to withdraw its troops from Ukraine? That would be a very positive thing. I don't see something similar like that happening in Canada that would lead Canada to withdrawing its troops. But I seriously hope for uh, political changes in Europe that would bring more uh, left-wing governments into power that could change uh, Europe being so tightly allied with the United States in its, uh, its anti-Russia policy with all the implications for, um, for Ukraine. So it, those are three possibilities. And you know, I don't see a lot of immediate movement on any of those right now. So. You know, in the short run, you know, things don't look too good. I can only hope that, you know, some unforeseen developments such as a, a growing dissatisfaction by uh, the Ukrainian people themselves could really start to, to change things in a, in a much bigger way. I'm hopeful for the future in, in the long run because the demands of the um, pro-autonomy movement, shall we say, in Ukraine are eminently reasonable, eminently obtainable. That gives me a lot of hope, but in, you know, in the short run, when I look at who's running the West and who's running the government in, in Ukraine, uh, there's not a lot of hope in the short, short term, so we can only uh, hope and anticipate for, for improvements, and the sooner the better. That conversation with Ruslan Zarasov and Roger Annis was recorded in Winnipeg at the Fort Garry Hotel on October 2nd, 2017. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.